Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning and welcome to the New Books in History podcast, part of the New Books Network. My name is Christoph Odinius. I'm the host. And our guest today is Dr. Tavid Tavares. He is a historian and linguist, linguistic anthropologist. He is professor of anthropology and director of Latin American and Latino Latina studies at Vassar College. He is a specialist in Nahuatl and Zapotec texts, the study of Mesoamerican religions and rituals, Catholic campaigns against idolatry, indigenous intellectuals, and native Christianities. He is the author or co-author of several books and dozens of articles and chapters. This is our second discussion on the podcast, and in the first one, a month or two ago, we talked about his edited volume, Words and Worlds Turned Around, and I will add that link to the blog or the show notes below so that the listeners can hear more from Dr. Tavares. Today, we're going to talk about his first book, or his earlier book, I should say, The Invisible War, which came out in paperback in 2013. Welcome, Professor. Tell us about The Invisible War. The title is a quotation. Tell us what it means and what is the context. Uh, well, first of all, thank you, Christoph, for having me uh, in your podcast again. And uh, uh, yeah, I'll tell you briefly what it is. I mean, it uh, uh, comes actually from Paul's sixth epistle to the Ephesians, uh, in which he makes, and this is something that uh, um, I think people who are familiar with uh, uh, Christianity and St. Paul know about, uh, he wants people to go on a war, which is an invisible war, right? Uh, that is going to be between the faithful and uh, the common enemy, which is, of course, the devil. So he has them, you know, put on uh, all these different things, like uh, the chastity belt, the coat of mail of justice, uh, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the spirit of the uh, sword, and uh, of course, uh, the, that uh, sword is the word of God. So he decks them up as uh, warriors in this invisible war. And I took this from um, a, uh, a 1656 publication by the Bishop of Oaxaca, Evi Valdez, who had a kind of a star extirpator of idolater, somebody who made it uh, his life's uh, mission to um, destroy indigenous religions um, in the colonial period. And this person was Gonzalo Vazalobre. So it kind of gives a, a really interesting um, perspective into the mind of the people who are trying to uh, destroy native religions, uh, you know, 140 years after conquest, uh, uh, they must have been desperate by by then. Uh, and of course, you know, this kind of rhetoric is interesting because it uh, tells us that they see this as a kind of a, a war to be fought uh, with no quarter, right? Uh, it is divinely ordained. It comes from probably the more what is the right word? The the the, uh, the most uh, militant of uh, New Testament writers in Paul, uh, and uh, you know, uh, of course, from an indigenous perspective, there's not really a war that is going on. I mean, people are just trying to get on with their lives in the colonial period. They're trying to uh, apprehend Christianity. They still have their ancestral devotions. So it's it's interesting because it's of course uh, uh, both a reflection of um, what uh, uh, the church. Uh, and his agents wanted to do how they saw the conflict. And on the other hand, uh, it is really, uh, you know, a, a, a war that is taking place uh, most of the time in the minds of the extirpators themselves. And of course, the last thing out of Invisible War that I like as a metaphor is that uh, a lot of the records that I work with are actually, uh, for the most part, poorly known. 
particularly some for Oaxaca, some for uh, Toluca. So I like this idea of this uh, kind of uh, uh, spiritual warfare uh, coming back into the open and being seen by uh, a uh, uh, people in the 21st century because it, it was, of course, hidden, uh, thus invisible because a lot of these records hadn't been uh, uh, analyzed in, in detail. And the sources that you refer to are supremely impressive. This book is no micro history of some interesting letter you found in that some archive. You spent 10 years of research in 29 archives in Mexico, Spain, the US, France, Belgium, Italy, and Vatican City, following 160 judges and 896 defendants accused of idolatry, sorcery, and superstition. So I think you of all people can uh, make broad statements and tell us the contours and the shape of this really big uh, perhaps invisible, perhaps now more visible history. What what did you learn? Um, well, uh, I guess uh, I should start by saying that they didn't set out to write this book. A lot of people have told me, well, why do you put so much stuff in one book? There should have been two books. And now I think that... I thought about asking that question. This was my doctoral dissertation. I did a combined PhD in anthropology and history at the University of Chicago. Uh, with uh, Susan Schroeder, uh, Paul Friedrich, Friedrich Katz, uh, Tom Cummins, uh, and then at different points, other people like uh, Marshall Salins, Bill Hanks, uh, Terry Turner, uh, Ray Fogelson, uh, helped me. Uh, so it's it's uh, it, it, it's kind of um, a hybrid, but uh, uh, I guess you know, in terms of the the breadth, I, I set out. Uh, uh, initially, I had read the work of Richard Greenleaf, which is, of course, one of the pioneers in terms of studying the uh, Mexican Inquisition in the 16th century in Sumarga. Uh, and I thought, well, you know, in terms of he had an article in the Americas listing different sources, and it looked like it was like a dozen sources. So I was like, OK, I have to cover two uh a uh, diocese, a Mexican Oaxaca, which is where a lot of the information is, in order to get, uh, you know, even, you know, a, a decent amount of documents, uh, right? But then when I um, started uh, working in the archives in Oaxaca, in Mexico, uh, in uh, uh, the Archive of the Indies, it, it became pretty clear there were all these different uh, loose threads and also um, documents that people either either uh, had not worked with or had just mentioned uh, briefly. So it became my task to put them together. And then in terms of what I learned, just to put it uh, uh, in periods, because I, I think this is one important uh, uh, lesson that comes out of this book. Um, a, uh, the first period, uh, which uh, since the um, time, I think, of Jose Toribio Medina, the great uh, uh, Chilean historian, uh, has been called the Apostolic Inquisition, uh, which is the Inquisition that exists, uh, that is in the hands of mostly mendicants, uh, particularly Dominicans. Uh, and uh, this lasts from the 15, well, uh, uh, for Mexico, of course, uh, for New Spain, from the 1520s until 1571, when the uh, Inquisition gets uh, 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 rid of indigenous people in terms of uh, its jurisdiction. Indigenous people are no longer being tried for crimes against the faith uh, by the Inquisition. 
uh, bishops have to do it. So that's the part that is better known, I think. I mean, Serge Grzynski uh, has done a lot of work on it uh, uh, from a different perspective. Solange Alberto has written um, kind of a long a long durée uh, history of the Inquisition in New Spain. Uh, but that's a part that, uh, in terms of indigenous um, uh, so-called idolatry and superstition, was best known. And then um, the second period that I propose is uh, the arrival of the secular, secular clergy uh, after 1571 to about the 1660s. This part, I think, was known primarily because of work of Hernando Ruiz de Larcón, uh, the brother of the famed uh, playwright Juan Ruiz de Larcón, who becomes uh, an expert in Nahuatl and collects uh, uh, more than 60 uh, incantations in Nahuatl in his little parish of Atenango del Rio in uh, what is now Guerrero. Uh, so it's people like him, uh, uh, Jacinto de la Serna, who also pulls material from Ruiz de Larcón, uh, Pedro Ponce de León, a uh, native priest, Gonzalo de Valsalobre, whom I mentioned earlier, uh, all this secular army, uh, so to speak, uh, who have knowledge of uh, at least some of the indigenous languages are doing this uh, work of investigation and extirpation uh, in a slightly different way, of course, because they're secular. So I put them in that second period. Then um, there is a rebellion in um, uh, what is now the Isthmus of Tehuantepec uh, in Oaxaca in 1660. So for for me, and particularly for the Diocese of Oaxaca, that seemed like a good um, cutting point uh, into the, uh, or transition into the third period, because then you begin to have a number of different uh, confrontations, right? Uh, the 1660 rebellion being one of them. Uh, it wasn't a widespread rebellion. I think Judith Seidling has some um, done very interesting work showing that uh, in some ways it was kind of a PR um, uh, move on the part of Spanish, uh, claiming that the rebellion was much larger than it actually was. But it still um, you know, has a lot of effects because an alcalde mayor gets killed during the riot and uh, uh, people do rise up in arms briefly. Uh, but then you have some confrontations, particularly in the uh, northern Oaxaca, what is usually called in Spanish uh, Sierra Norte, the northern sierras, where a lot of... Uh, 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 Zapotec speakers, northern Zapotec speakers live are uh, uh, alongside uh, Ayuk or Mije speakers and then Chinantec uh, speakers uh, in the um, uh, province of Iyalta. So there's a, a number of different um, small scale confrontations, uh, riots. Uh, uh, the best known, of course, is the one uh, that happens in 1700, the uh, so-called martyrs of Cajona's rebellion that uh, this is, you know, I'm going to talk about this maybe in greater detail later, but this rebellion and its repression uh, opens the door for um, a massive um, campaign against idolatry that is led by Bishop Maldonado, uh, the new uh, incoming Bishop of Oaxaca uh, in 1702. So it's, this is led, roughly speaking, between 1702 and 1706. It uh, results in the uh, surrender of about 102 uh, calendrical manuals uh, with the ancient Zapotec count, which are also cosmological manuals, and then four collections of ritual songs. And again, there's nothing quite like this, uh, I think, uh, comparable uh, in uh, colonial Mesoamerica. There's certainly uh, the Yucatec songs of Tzibalche, uh from the 18th century. There's uh, all the different books of the Chilambalam uh um, a uh, priests that uh, have been preserved in Yucatec Maya, but in terms of um, you know uh, just the depth 
and the breadth of it and showing what uh, indigenous intellectuals and ritual specialists can do, this is uh, without uh, um, compare, right? And then in the 1720s, after Maldonado leaves, uh, I, I take that fourth uh, and final period to be one that is characterized by uh, more systematic attempts against indigenous people's uh, um, uh, beliefs, uh, the establishment of Spanish language schools, uh, the beginning of an acculturation um, uh, strategy. And this lasts from the 1720s until the very end, the uh, uh, second decade of the uh, um, 19th century, which is when the uh, Inquisition is finally abolished uh, and other uh, similar uh, juridical a uh, procedures uh, also uh, stop happening, right? So it's uh, a very different period, and uh, I was lucky to find uh, a cache of records in the Valley of Toluca, uh, mostly you know ranging from 1720s to about the 1770s, that gives us insight into uh, particularly sorcery uh, accusations, uh, and uh, uh, it's, it's it's mostly sorcery and healing accusations uh, in uh, Nahua communities uh, in and around the Valley of Toluca. So that that's the four big periods that I have. I kind of have uh, sketched them uh, very quickly and briefly, uh, but you know, I, I want people to have that as a takeaway in terms of how do you take this uh, campaigns against idolatry extirpation in both uh, Mexico and Oaxaca, compare them, give them a particular uh, periodization, and then talk about uh, the outcomes uh, in uh, native responses to those uh, efforts. Yeah, and I think it's really helpful in the way the book is organized that we can uh, think in these categories and um, and periods. Uh, I think we should start with um, the Counter Reformation and where did this Inquisition come from, and how did it get to uh, the colonies of the Spanish Empire, and what did it, what was it for, what was it supposed to do? Uh, well, yeah, I, I guess this is the part that is, I think, best known uh, again from the work of Henry Lee. Uh, uh, who started working on the Spanish Inquisition uh, to Jose Toribio Medina, to Richard Greenleaf, uh, to other uh, pioneers in terms of uh, this transition. But I mean, if I were to just kind of summarize it in terms of the uh, the roots, um, as I think uh, some people might know, um, there is a second Inquisition that is established uh, circa 1478 by uh, Aragon and Castile which are in the process of uh, unifying the Iberian Peninsula. Uh, this is very different from the uh, uh, Inquisition uh, that took place, particularly in terms of um, a confrontations between uh, the heretics in the south of France that were called Qatars, right? Uh, there's a, an actual war with uh, uh, armed Qatars and armed uh, a, uh, uh, servants of the Pope and other um, a, uh, French uh, rulers, uh, 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 roughly speaking, uh, you know, in the uh, first couple of decades of the 13th century. Um, so this is different, right? Uh, the the f- earliest uh, Inquisition uh, is uh, in some ways, uh, you know, uh, depends on this kind of uh, clash between heretics who are very militant and other people who see themselves as defenders of Christian orthodoxy and supported by uh, the Pope. Uh, And then this one, uh, uh, the one that uh, emerges in Iberia after 1478. uh, And this, you know, we know, of course, about this uh, from the work of Henry Kamen, who wrote a a very um, um, good uh, summary of the um, emergence of Inquisition in in, in Spain. Um, 
uh, is different because it deals mostly with suspicions of Judaism, with this idea that uh, all the different converts uh, a, uh, uh, from Judaism to Christianity are actually uh, ins- uh, unsincere um, converts. Uh, and there's the suspicion that all these people in high places are actually you know, of Jewish descent, uh, of conversa descent. So uh, that's one of the things that, of course, uh, a, uh, the, the, the uh, Ferdinand of Aragon and Savala Castile are trying to determine you know, what to do with this issue. Uh, on the other hand, as Cayman uh, reminds us, um, a, there's a lot of Jewish people who are part uh, conversos, former, former Jews uh, conversos in uh, their administration, so they don't want to take it too far. But this is the beginning of an inquisition that then when it comes into the uh, Americas, and this is mostly through uh, Dominicans like Domingo de Betanzos uh, in Hispaniola, who begin to take, you know, the of course the idea of the Inquisition is that uh, any crime that has to do with uh, mm, crimes of against the Christian faith or uh, not being a good Christian, and this actually includes not paying uh, tithes, uh, not uh, giving the obligations to the church or marrying more than once, uh, bigamy, lots of different uh, a, uh, uh, transgressions are prosecuted by the Inquisition. So Betanzos and other Dominicans take this to uh, the Caribbean uh, in the first uh, decade of the uh, 16th century. And then, of course, uh, we don't really have a very established Inquisition in New Spain. We have people like um, the Franciscan Martin de Valencia, who's, of course, the leader of the group of uh, uh, 12 Franciscans who come to Mexico in 1524 on the heels of uh, other Franciscans like Pedro de Gante and uh, a couple of others who were already there. Uh, and uh, uh, Valencia actually does try and execute some noble uh, men in Tlaxcala uh, because he finds them uh, uh, recalcitrant and they're actually uh, plotting to stop the evangelization process. Uh, he accuses them of uh, uh, lots of different things, uh, um, uh, but mostly uh, being rebellious uh, against the Christian faith. So he um, um, has them executed. So this is not under the Inquisition's um, uh, umbrella, so to speak, because there's really no formal Inquisition established. But there's people like Valencia and then Sumarraga, who is the first bishop of uh, Mexico, who comes in, in the late 1520s. Uh, uh, he doesn't really... Um, get going uh, until uh, the um, early 1530s. And then he asks uh, the um, Bishop uh, of Mexico and as uh, also an inquisitorial judge has the power to then uh, uh, bring anybody that uh, whom he wants to bring in uh, for questioning or for a trial uh, in a formal Inquisition tribunal. And then this leads to uh, um, a, the first prosecutions against uh, Spanish, uh, even people suspected of uh, you know heretical beliefs. And then uh, in 1537, this is when we begin to have the first uh, trials against indigenous people for idolatry. And it's a very, that early period of Sumara is very uh, f- well fruitful in the sense that you have about 19 trials uh, uh, for idolatry or uh, superstition. You have a, a, a bigamy trial uh, involving indigenous people too. That is not part of the 19 uh, uh, cases that I'm talking about. And this goes on from about 1537 to a uh, 1540. But then, and I guess I'll close with this observation, which you know, takes us into like the more mature part of what happens in the first period. Uh, the um, 
a cacique, the nobleman from Texcoco, Don Carlos Chichimecatehutli, is accused of uh, heretical propositions. Uh, he's investigated for hiding idols. Uh, they don't really, they're not able to prove the second part of the um, a, uh, charges, uh, but he is convicted for heretical propositions uh, and he is actually executed uh, in public view uh, in September of 1539. And this uh, brings about uh, a transition because um, uh, after a review by uh, uh, the Crown and uh, other counselors associated with the Crown, they decide that the Sumatra has gone too far in terms of uh, punishing uh, indigenous peoples. So uh, they remove him as uh, inquisitorial judge. And then uh, another set of um, a uh, inquisitorial judges take uh, uh, take that they take that place uh, of uh, Sumarga eventually, and that is a, a very dramatic uh, and exciting narrative that opens um, your mm-hmm. book and that the death of Don Carlos uh, Chichimecatehutli, mm-hmm. if I'm saying that yes. really uh, is. Um, I wonder if it's representative, and I think one of the reasons I wanted to ask you about the Inquisition first, and especially because of Charles Lee, who I remember reading his 1906 mm-hmm. book on four volumes, it, it really mm-hmm. turned the Inquisition for uh, Anglo-American audiences into this um, byword for a totalitarian mm-hmm. uh, kind of um, uh, specter, you know, in the, in the or what Span- Spanish historians might call the, the black legend and mm-hmm. lives on in Monty Python and here and there. <laughs> yeah. But uh, the more we read about it, the more we realize, well, it re- it was... The Inquisition, but something like one to two percent of the trials would result in execution, and yet we have it as a as this terrifying specter, mostly because I think it's investigating the the you know the private views of people, which has which is today we would I think all agree is inappropriate, but centuries earlier was the mandate of of the authority. I wonder if if you find what happened to Don Carlos here, the cacique, um, the the exception and um, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you would say that, and I wonder what you would say that uh, how how um, how invasive, how effective, and uh, would would the um, these investigations be? Can, can you say, having looked at all of these um, yeah. archives? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think there is um, a consensus uh, if we think about the work of uh, Solange Alberro and Harry Kamen, for instance, is that uh, the Inquisition really had a an impossible objective, right? They needed to control everyone's minds uh, uh, to make sure that everyone followed orthodoxy. Uh, the way this was done is through denunciations and sometimes self-denunciations uh, when people realize that uh, uh, a uh, uh, it's like the case of this professor at George Washington University who uh, you know claimed to be African American <laughs> turned out not to be, but then before people had a chance to say anything about her, she um, um, outed herself. So it is the same with um, um, people who uh, self denounce, right? So it's it's basically uh, it's predicated on on uh, a uh, fear of punishment, the enmity of people, uh, you know, people who might uh, accuse uh, neighbors or. Mm, other people that they have a, a disagreement with of um, a transgression. And of course, the Inquisition had a set of rules that come from us, uh, from the work of Tomás de Torquemada, which uh, sets up fairly strict um, procedures for um, uh, how you're going to conduct interrogation, uh, the fact that you need uh, a uh, uh, 
you know, for, for uh, in, in most cases, three different witnesses that the witnesses have to swear that they don't have uh, anything against the uh, accuser, uh, that they're doing this out of their, you know, sense of uh, responsibility and being a, a good Christian. So there's a lot of hoops that people have to jump through. Uh, in terms of, uh, like you were saying, uh, punishment, I mean, Don Carlos's uh, execution is really unusual because, you know, I, I, prefaced um, my remarks by talking about the uh, uh, Tlaxcalteca uh, lords who were uh, executed by Valencia in the 1520s. But um, it is, um, there's uh, other uh, punishments uh, similar uh, to those in Oaxaca that take place under a civil judge, actually. Uh, but, you know, besides the 1520s and, uh, I'm sorry, uh, these cases, a uh, handful of cases in the 1530s, for the most part, indigenous people are not uh, executed. Uh, in fact, I mean, uh, most people who are um, a, uh, convicted by the Inquisition are not executed. Uh, there's different categories in terms of uh, a, how you're going to receive an absolution. Uh, the categories define what uh, punishment you're going to uh, receive. And the maximum uh, punishment, which is, of course, the so-called relaxation to the secular arm, meaning uh, the Inquisition never actually mm, uh, you don't have ecclesiastics torturing or killing people. They delegate those functions to uh, professional uh, torturers and executioners who are working under the civil arm. Uh, so a, when you have that determination of, uh, of guilt, then uh, a punishment is found that the Inquisition itself does not administer the punishment. Um, so, you know, what happens in terms of um, uh, actual uh, suffering is that, of course, there's a lot of suffering, Um uh, in my cases, I found that maybe six to seven percent of the people who are investigated are subjected to juridical torture, uh, a meaning that they uh, use torture systematically to ask them questions uh, to make sure that they're um, telling the truth. Uh, if you go through that ordeal and continue uh, with your story, uh, often you are regarded as telling the truth and then the torture stops, right? Um, so the, the amount of people who are actually tortured is, uh, relatively low. Um, uh, a, uh, the amount of people secu- executed in the end is, is, is very small. And if you think about at least, you know, from the perspective of the cases that I've worked with, except for, uh, Maldonado's campaign in Oaxaca, you usually have about a dozen cases per decade, sometimes less. So it's, it's not really a lot of people who are being, uh, investigated and convicted. Uh, which brings us to the other, um, part of the, um, uh, the, the, the objective of the auto de fe and the public punishment and public, uh, uh, a, uh, humiliation. And this is done. So people are afraid of doing what, uh, uh, the indigenous people, uh, who were accused of idolatry superstition did. Uh, the, uh, my book has on its cover an illustration of a 1716 um, auto de fe, which relates to the career of uh, uh, Provisor de Indios y Chinos, uh, uh, somebody who was in charge of administering ecclesiastical justice in the uh, Archbishopric of Mexico, um, Juan Ignacio Castellano y Ursua. And you can see, you know, how they're basically, uh, they're actually facing uh, the judges. Uh, their backs are uh, 
towards us, and they're wearing the um, San Benito and the Corosa, which are the uh, basically the the uh, the shrouds where you sometimes have uh, uh, different drawings that depict what is it that you have been convicted of, and then the kind of dunces cup that is called the Corosa, right? So they're being humiliated in public, uh, and uh, uh, I think the strategy behind it was to do uh, mm, some of this. Um, a uh, procedures carry them to the very end when there were, of course, uh, enough uh, evidence against the accused. And part of it is like, is, this is a theater of, of, of punishment, right? Uh, that the idea is to impress how serious uh, this transgression is so that people who are watching will refrain from from doing so. So it's uh, there, there's a, a, a very interesting kind of economy of punishment that goes on here in terms of uh, um, devoting certain resources to carrying out uh, a relatively small number of prosecutions that are going to end up in this public theater that is supposed to serve as a deterrent for uh, the indigenous audiences who are subject to it. I think it's a really great cover, and I, I'm glad that I, uh, usually on our podcast we show the cover of the book that we are talking about, so I think all our listeners will easily be able to see this painting how big is is the painting that and the detail in it is is quite rich and we don't i find it interesting that all of the um the accused are facing away from us but we really see the faces of the people mm-hmm. watching them and and taking the public lesson like yeah the cautionary tale uh yeah what, what's on the cover is actually a a, a selection of the actual um uh, painting um that you the, you have the whole thing in in the in the book uh, I think on page two thirty six in black and white two thirty six the, the cover is yeah, it, beautiful is well in terms of its detail right it's a terrible subject matter but um um a uh, what you can see you know when you see the entire scene is that uh, this is actually like a public event uh, there's like uh, uh, passersby there's a child playing with a dog on the lower right corner so this is like definitely like a, more like a, uh, a public event, uh, in some ways, a public celebration. Uh, this comes from the uh, Museo Nacional de Arte, and uh, it is actually um, a fairly large scale. I mean, I would say about, uh, I don't have the dimensions in front of me, uh, but it's uh, about close to uh, six feet in its largest dimensions. It's a big uh, painting, right? Uh, and uh, I'm sorry, I said it's on page 238 for our readers if they have the book. 238. Okay, all right, yeah. yeah. Uh, and and um, uh, what I was gonna say is that uh, it is quite impressive also because uh, we don't have that many representations of an actual auto de fe, uh, we have uh, a, some representations of the punishment of the Tlaxcalteca lords, uh, uh, but it, they're very rare, right? So, this is the one. Uh, full representation we have of a, a, a late uh, of a colonial uh, uh, auto de fe involving uh, uh, indigenous peoples, and of course, you know this is uh, probably the last war auto de fe is uh, the famous painting uh, from the 1490s by Berruguete, which is actually in the cover of Henry Cayman's uh, modern uh, 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 history of the Inquisition. Um, and uh, it's, it's, of course, a, a very different painting because, of course, uh, what you have is there is uh, uh, St. Dominic Santo Domingo, the um, founder of the Dominican Order, presiding over uh, an auto de fe, but there's only two people. And uh, uh, it's, um, in some ways, I mean, the both paintings have to do with rank uh, and with placing the secular and the 
religious um, uh, orders in society together, uh, showing their rank, which is also shown uh, in the uh, uh, painting that I use in my um, uh, in my book. But uh, in in the painting, of course, that I have in my book, uh, you have uh, interesting details. Like, uh, for instance, uh, you have uh, a uh, to the right of the viewer. Uh, to the right of the uh, accused, uh, convicted, are indigenous authorities who are actually carrying their staff of command. So they're there to represent uh, kind of the Christian indigenous republic of Indians who are, of course, agreeing with the punishment on their brethren, their fellow Indians, and who are uh, also part of the body that is collectively uh, punishing uh, this uh, indigenous people for uh, a crime against the faith. I would not have realized who they were, and of course, you can see the gentlemen in their in their wigs, and you can see the mm-hmm. the the um, clerics in their robes. Mm-hmm. Um, so wonderful. So let's. I think we yeah. should really talk about what are these transgressions and uh, what is idolatry. You 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 explain how the concept of idolatry comes from you know, ancient um, Hebrews and uh, the book of uh, Exodus, the Ten Commandments. And how it is applied, I believe you say it seems an inversion of orthodoxy. And at one point, you use the term antipodal, which I love. I think it, it, it illustrates the idea. But can you say more about what is idolatry and superstition and sorcery? And uh, does it change? And how can you find something like that out? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a, a, a really, uh, I, I, I guess um, I, I want to just kind of um, summarize this uh, for our audience, but of course, in the Old Testament, uh, idolatry uh, is a very important transgression and uh, uh, so important that people have to be punished uh, by death, as Moses does with the followers of the golden calf. They have to actually uh, drink the molten golden calf, thus, uh, you know, basically uh, choking to death on, on, on the gold of the, uh, the molten gold of the, of the calf. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, there's also the ridicule of uh, people who have given the option to worship the one true God and who don't uh, accept it, right? That is uh, echoed in different biblical books. Uh, Aquinas is uh, an important uh, part of this tradition because uh, he's the one who begins to say, well, idolatry is actually the root of all uh, uh, other sins. Uh, and uh he begins to think about, uh, in particular, the uh, the worship of uh, ancestors and dead people as uh, a central issue of idolatry. And he uh, devises into two different uh, causes. One that is caused by humans, you know, who miss their sons or fathers uh, uh, and erect them um, monuments to remember them. Uh, so it's kind of an emotional uh, notion uh, behind it. And the other one is... Uh, that is uh, something that is caused by the devil and the devil's intervention. So um, regardless of the cause, uh, he sees uh, idolatry as being kind of a disordered uh, love for the ancestors, right? Uh, And this is, I think, uh, something that is uh, uh, important uh, to think about uh, as a concept because, of course, when um, uh, Sumarraga and other people come in, they have uh, perhaps uh, Aquinas in their minds. They have other 
um, references from Habakkuk, uh, from different biblical books. Uh, so they have a, a preordained sense of what idolatry is. It's basically the, uh, the cult of effigies that stand in place of the cult to uh, the one true uh, God. Um, and they have all these models that they draw uh, on from classical antiquity. So in some ways, I mean, this is, uh, and I, I thought this was a provocative move. I uh, did it, um, I guess, to to stir up some discussion. And definitely in Mexico, this has a, a stir up some discussion. Um, I, I uh, uh, thought that, uh, you know, uh, idolatry, um, a like uh, a famous definition of pornography in the U.S., uh, uh, you know, you, you know it when you see it. So in some ways, there's a particular recognition that comes in seeing what you think idolatry is and then acting upon it, right? Uh, and it's, it's, it's um, what I want to draw attention to is that uh, usually when it comes to investigations of idolatry or sorcery, there's really um, not a, a lot of attempts. Uh, there's a few, of course, but they're um, may, may I interrupt uh, before you go on? I, I think that's a very apt comparison because uh, clearly you, what is pornography, what is art, you know it when you see it. Why is that such a shocking comparison uh, in Mexico? Well, I mean, because uh, people come from a very different perspective, particularly in uh, the juridical study of um, uh, a ecclesiastic jurisdiction. And they, 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 they want to believe that um, there was some systematicity in everything that uh, 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 the judges did, right? And the problem here is that when you start looking for an intellectual history of, uh, of idolatry in the 16th century, what you find is actually a lot of disconnects, right? And I think that sometimes for people who are just like talking about juridical concepts, they want the concepts to be um, kind of uh, uh, permanent, uh, systematic, squared off. And what I saw was actually uh, not quite that, right? So Marnaga doesn't really stop himself. He knows exactly what adultery is. He knows that it involves uh, idols. Uh, he goes straight for the juggler, so to speak, when he uh, convicts Don Carlos of uh, heretical propositions. He has people who uh, are actually talking about how he is uh, demanding that indigenous people be allowed to worship in their own ways. Uh, uh, because that's, you know, the Dominicans, the Franciscans, the Augustinians seem to have different ways of doing things. So let the indigenous worship as they wish. So that's, that's heresy, right? But, you know, we, uh, when it comes to idolatry, I mean, Sumarraga is, is very clear in terms of defining, you know, what the heretical propositions are. But when it comes to defining idolatry, I think it comes down primarily to showing that people were worshiping some sort of effigy, even though neither uh, you know the 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 uh, accusers nor the um, uh, people in court might ne- necessarily know what was going on or have a sense of how it uh, connected with their beliefs. Um, and then there's of course this kind of um, uh, disconnect between the 16th century when you have people like uh, Andres de Olmos talking about the devil dressing up like a, a, a preconquest lord and inviting people to uh, continue with their old ways. Uh, and uh, almost all, actually tr- takes a lot of ideas from Martin de Castañeda, who's a Franciscan who writes this very uh, important and uh, influential treatise on, on uh, a, uh, uh, a different uh, superstition, sorcery, crimes against the faith. Uh, but then when you get to the 17th century, I'm sorry, uh, with Ruiz de Larcón and Basalobre, you find that uh, 
these people haven't read Olmos because, of course, he's uh, you know been left in manuscript form. There's no way they could read Olmos. Uh, these people, of course, don't know what Sumarga did because that's uh, these archives uh, are not uh, open up until the 19th century. These are secret archives. Uh, they have no way of knowing what other people have done in terms of like uh, finding out what um, you know. How do you talk about idolatry? Uh, in in a way that actually defines it before you encounter it, and uh, how do you actually think about mm, how the, the the notion of what idolatry is might have moved uh, from the 16th to the 17th century? So people like uh, Ruiz de Larcón uh, and Basalori are pragmatists. You know, they just want to get evidence that they're praying to the old gods, that they have effigies, uh, and they also um, are focusing on what it it is that you need to do to actually establish uh, a, uh, a legal procedure that is going to uh, be orthodox uh, from the uh, standpoint of ecclesiastical justice. So Balsalov actually devotes uh, uh, a good part of his 1656 uh, treatise on, um, on idolatry in Oaxaca to, to tell people how to put together this case. But of course, the, um, the, the irony is that uh, uh, Evie Valdez, the uh, fellow who gave the name to this book, um, actually uh, declares himself uh, an inquisitor of Indians. This is uh, in the 1640s when uh, the Inquisition in Mexico is going through a lot of reforms, uh, particularly uh, at the hand of Medina Rico, who is this uh, uh, a official who comes in to try to figure out uh, some uh, uh, important issues in terms of organization the Inquisition is going through in Mexico. And he is absolutely incensed that uh, a bishop of Oaxaca will call himself uh, an ordinary inquisitor or an inquisitor of the Indians. So he actually strikes down the treaties, uh, uh, has it confiscated and confiscates all the different legal proceedings of Basalobre, uh, uh, a uh, instructed that Basalobre led in Oaxaca precisely because they commit uh, the great transgression of calling themselves inquisitors when they're not, right? So uh, again, you have all these different disjunctions in terms of uh, ranging from the definition of idolatry to really how to actually uh, assume the powers that you need to have against idolaters and the correct title to call yourself, uh, which this crisis, the uh, Balsalobre and Evi Valdez crisis, kind of exemplifies as, as a, uh, uh, you know, in, in, just in terms of the different disjunctions that can occur uh, as people in the ecclesiastical world try to define what uh, idolatry is and how to prosecute it. Well, as, as we probably have a little less than 15 minutes left, mm -hmm. I'd love for you to explain what you have discovered uh, in the surviving traditions of the indigenous peoples. And I, I, we can frame it because I remember last time um, you explained why we don't say syncretism or hybridization. And you repeat that in this, I mean, this book was first, I'm sorry, you said this in this book first, and then you and I spoke about that. But um, you also referred to William Christensen's idea of local religion and how uh, religion evolves a certain way in a certain place under certain uh, contingencies. Maybe you can explain um, some of these surviving traditions, how they mixed in uh, Oaxaca and in Mexico and um, in the Valley of Mexico, and maybe talk a bit about the discovery of these um, of these calendars and uh, documents that, that came out in the beginning of the 18th century and uh, pa paint that picture for, for our listeners. 
Okay. So I guess starting with the manuals and the calendars that I mentioned briefly, uh, this is, like I said, a very unique corpus in that this is written by ritual specialists who know uh, the 260-day count perfectly, uh, who know how it uh, uh, relates to the 365-day count, who know how it actually has a correlation, which they uh, continue to observe. It's always systematic with the first Julian and then the Gregorian uh, Christian calendars. So they're mm, kind of masters of, of, of time structures, but also space, because uh, this there's a very interesting cosmological theory that I uh, mentioned in, in some of my works and uh, also in my future works uh, uh, regarding this cosmological theory that comes out of Mesoamerica that uh, links time and space. Uh, in other parts of central Mexico, and I'm particularly thinking about this uh, page one of this great codex, uh, Fayerberry Meyer, uh, which represents the lot of time with the four directions and four trees, uh, and then the uh, uh, the day count describing two different circles around it. That's one way of seeing it. What Zapotec's doing this manual is actually tell us, well, there's actually uh, all these 260 days are going up and down three different uh, uh, houses, as they call them, uh, Earth, Sky, and Underworld. There's nine levels above Earth, nine levels below, uh, there has been in recent years, um, uh, I think, a dispute, well, not a, 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 an exchange of uh, views in terms of whether uh, Mesoamerican peoples saw the cosmos as being flat or being uh, having levels. Uh, there's interesting ideas about how the nine levels might have come from, uh, 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 you know, Dante Alighieri's uh, levels of uh, underworld or something that is Christian in origin. Um, from my perspective, what I found with this Zapotec manuals is that uh, this has to have uh, a preconquest origin uh, because you were talking about time and space together coming in, in uh, very close uh, synchrony. It's, it's really hard to imagine that they have a different system. They read Dante say, oh, forget about this. We're going to invent the cosmos again in about 100 years before they're ca- uh, they catch us uh, uh, doing so in the late uh, uh, 17th century. There's not much time to do that. There's no evidence that they you know, love this kind of uh, 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 system that comes from Christianity, which is actually not nine levels, but 11 spheres, if you read um, uh, the literature on it uh, carefully. So there, there's lots of questions. And from my perspective, of course, this is of uh, uh, the Zapotec uh, system is of Mesoamerican origins. And, uh, uh, you know, what, what the, the manuals um, make us understand is a couple of things. One, of course, is that there is a diversity of um, uh, theories about the cosmos. Um, sometimes in Northern Oaxaca, there's people who disagree on, on the cosmos, but you're going to have different regional traditions. You know, you cannot think about this one solid single Mesoamerican tradition about the cosmos, uh, which would explain why some people think about the cosmos as kind of, uh, uh, flatter, uh, in a way, rather than being uh, organized on levels, which is another, uh, possibility in other theories. Um, the other important part about the manuals, and this goes back, I think, to your question about, uh, in contemporary practice and how it relates to uh, uh, 17th, 18th century practice is that um, I found evidence of uh, a uh, exchanges between ancestors and uh, uh, communities. Uh, the ancestors come down from the sky and give very specifically gifts of uh, jewel strings and 
uh, long-lived plants to their descendants. Uh, this is represented in stele, uh, you know, uh, places like Noriega, uh, places like uh, uh, Sachila, other places in central Oaxaca uh, from the uh, classic and post-classic periods. And this comes from the work of uh, uh, archaeologists and epigrapher Javier Ucid. So we know about these rituals. And what happens in the 17th century is that people, be, uh, uh, when they're singing these ritual songs, which are part of the corpus uh, that I study, uh, they actually talk about these visions of ancestors coming down from the sky with jewels and uh, 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 broadleaf uh, plants, uh, ancestors in the guise of turtles who come down as ancestor sacrificers uh, holding uh, a, a flint knives, which is, of course, another element that occurs iconographically in, in uh, other places in ancient Oaxaca, uh, ancient Zapotec iconography. So you have that continuity. Uh, right in terms of at least remembering these important rituals, uh, you have continued in terms of thinking about uh, ancestral bundles, which are uh, the so-called uh, kind of the heads of the great tree, uh, and these are uh, sacred bundles that actually contain uh, you know uh, hanks of hair, uh, different relics from the bodies of uh, grandfathers, great grandfathers. Uh, which are worship. This is part of a very complex ancestor worship complex. Now, this definitely, um, the system of ancestor worship, which has a lot of political ramifications as you begin to think what it is like to worship somebody's uh, great-grandfather in a particular community, um, it has disappeared. What you have right now, uh, and I know this from you know doing ethnographic research in Northern Oaxaca, is that you have some of the same sacred places that people worshiped at uh, in uh, the 17th century are still there. And they actually, people use them to pray to what they call the people of the mountains, the people of the rivers, uh, Beneya, Beneyegu. Uh, they don't talk about them in terms of individuals. I mean, it's, it's uh, uh, sometimes they talk about uh, uh, this uh, feather snake called Balashila. Uh, they they uh, talk about certain uh, uh supernatural uh sacred beings uh but it's not as uh what is the right word uh, the, the kind of worship that occurs today uh is kind of informed by the uh history of ancestral worship but it, it is not about ancestral worship as it is more about uh, giving uh the right gifts uh at the right time for the sacred forces that are still uh, in charge of uh, of these places that are usually mountaintops, uh, are usually uh, small ponds or lakes uh, where people still practice animal sacrifice, uh, still say prayers to uh, this uh, uh, a, uh, important uh, uh, beings of the mountains and the rivers. Uh, so there's some elements, particularly. I'm, know, I'm reminded of a of a Guatemalan movie from the last decade called Ishkanul, set on a volcano where the mother and daughter they mm -hmm. pray, you know, with candles to the you know the the Virgin Mary and the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But then they also go up to the volcano with mm -hmm. gifts of food and other things like that, and um and offer their uh, homage and obeisance to the. Uh, to the elements, the various elements, the earth, the sky, and, and the volcano itself. And that, I think, is probably going on in Guatemala today, just as probably happens in Oaxaca and other places. Is that, have you seen this movie? 
Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's like it. a good example of that. I mean, well, to, now, now in terms of, uh, you know, what it, you asked about what is happening today, you can definitely talk about yes, lots yes. of different communities, right? Tlapanix, uh, 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 Wastex, uh, Nahua speakers uh, in the Wastex region, people in Oaxaca, people in Chiapas, uh, they speak several different Maya languages, people in Guatemala you spoke of, where you definitely have this uh, kind of... Um, uh, I guess, multi-sided uh, 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 worship protocols. You go to particular sacred sites, they continue to be attached to a particular community. Uh, uh, anybody can go there, but they have a particular historical relation to a, a certain community. And they, in some ways, represent uh, the sacred beings that have guarded the community uh, from their perspective from time immemorial. So that's kind of, uh, if you were to just do a thumbnail sketch of the kind of... Uh, um, 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 protocols that take place. I mean, you could put a lot of uh, contemporary Mesoamerican uh, worship in that uh, uh, in in that quarter. But then, you know, in terms of what happens and how it articulates with other uh, a ways of life, this is you know where it gets very interesting because, of course, you know the in terms of the what happens in in the Zapata communities that I work with is um, you have older sites and they have newer sites that are coming into being and being regarded as powerful sites. So people go and pray to them. You still have people offer uh, cacao beans like uh, in the 17th century, uh, instead of uh, a, uh, a offering this uh, uh, drink that was probably something like pulque, like a maguey beverage uh, with the root uh, uh, put in. So it was uh, you know more potent. You have people drinking Tres Coronas sherry, which is a commercially uh, available sherry. Instead of uh, cure, uh, lime cured tobacco, uh, which was called queza in Zapotec and pisillet in Nahuatl, you have cigarettes, right? So you have this logical substitution in terms of all the different uh, offerings that kind of have uh, brought all these uh, sacred gifts uh, into uh, the 21st century. And they still sacrifice turkeys. But uh, something that's really important is that uh, now you have the transnational uh, uh, Zapotec communities that come from uh, as they call it themselves, Oaxaca, California, the uh, California-based communities of diasporic Zapotecs that go back to these sites and pray. You know, you, I, I have seen people who are uh, actually, you know, Anglo-American who have uh, married a Zapotec girl. They come back and they um, participate in a, uh, a series of uh, offerings that is meant to give them well-being as a couple that is led by um, uh, an elder person who knows uh, some of the prayers uh, in in uh, in a Zapotec village. Uh, there is a ritual specialist that I've um, had the um, honor to to know and work with, uh, Aurelia Cano, who showed me this um, particular ritual that takes place at uh, what seems to be the same place that was involved uh, in ancestor worship uh, back in 1704 in the town of uh, La Chichia, uh, La Chiriot. So what she does is actually, uh, uh, she asks migrants to take a piece of clothing of their bodies, and then she says some words to the people who live in that particular sacred uh, cave, it's a small cave called uh, Yabe. Uh, and uh, uh, she believes that by showing uh, the piece of clothing uh, to the uh, sacred beings who live there, the migrant uh, who's going to put those clothes back on is going to be protected by them as uh, he or she goes back 
uh, across a very perilous trip uh, across Mexico and then across the uh, U.S.-Mexico border. So you have, of course, a lot of different uh, ways in which um, the the last one that I'll mention uh, briefly, because I know we're running out of time, is that the manuals are no longer used. The 260-day calendar is no longer used in the Northern Sierra, uh, at least by most people. There's people in uh, southern Zapotec communities um, a, uh, that still use um, a, a count of nine days that has different subdivisions that is uh, a uh, has the same roots as a 260-day count, but is structurally different. Uh, that is done in some southern Zapotec communities. But in the northern Zapotec communities that I work with, people use this almanac, this agrarian almanac called the uh, the uh, Manual of the Most Ancient Galvan, which is um, a uh, uh, an almanac for all the different days of the year that is published every year, and it has been published uh, uh, un- uh, without interruption since the 1820s in Mexico. So it's a very European way of thinking about time, but the way in which time is understood, particularly for offering um, um, uh, a uh, prayers and gifts to the uh, people of the mountains, people of the river, uh, this has to do with uh, a particular kind of local religion that has taken root in in those communities. And I think this is where uh, it would be helpful to, you mentioned William Christian, who has described uh, what looked like superstition from an Orthodox Spanish viewpoint. Uh, I think it's also important to think about uh, relations of power and who the ritual is for, because um, once you start... Um, building a, a, a big category that's called local religion, it can hold a lot of different things that are not necessarily the same together. Just because you know a, a particular community has a certain set of beliefs that look, uh, quote-unquote, superstitious or non-modern from our perspective, that doesn't mean that they're similar. There's going to be a lot of differences in terms of relations of power, in terms of, uh, again, transnational uh, phenomena like the one I'm describing, in terms of substitution of offerings, in terms of integration with Christianity. And so we have to, uh, just like with uh, syncretism, hybridity, I think be um, careful in terms of really uh, doing justice to uh, the, the very different uh, a, uh, the performances and behaviors that might fall under a single rubric like uh, local religion. I think that's a, a perfect place to stop and a good last word. And mm-hmm. thank you very much for bringing us to the present uh, and uh, for your time today, and especially for this book, which is not long. It's 280 pages, but it opens a, a, a door to a fascinating and enormous world. Um, and it's quite an achievement. So congratulations again, and thank you so much. Yeah. Well, thank you, uh, Krista, for uh, letting me share this uh, words about the book. Uh, it's getting a bit old, frankly. Uh, you know, it was published in 2011, paperback 2013 with Stanford University Press. Uh, there's more works on the way, so uh, we will continue to learn. Uh, about these manuals, uh, traditions, and uh, religious practices in uh, colonial Mesoamerica for years to come, I hope. And perhaps we can talk again when you write the next one. Oh, I'm looking forward to it, Christoph. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you.